Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. Our focus will be on chapter 6 through 10, and we'll cover most of those verses. At least we will read those verses. But I want to begin the end of chapter 5 to be reminded of uh, where we have come. This wonderful lesson of God's providence called Esther is part of a, a longer series on God's providence, starting with the book of Ruth in the beginning of the summer and working our way through now the book of Esther, concluding today with a sleep-deprived king and the providence of God manifested very, very clearly for us. You will remember that we have been introduced to this king, Ahasuerus, who is the king of the Persian Empire, who had aligned with the Medes. He throws a huge party at the beginning of the book in order to build the morale of the Persians and the Medes in order to battle the rising star of Greece, uh, a way of just psyching themselves up for the battle that would someday come. At the climax of this feast, you will recall, when everyone's supposed to feel the most confident in this king and his power, his own wife will not respond when he asks her to come with her crown on before these drunken guests. He has to respond, and he responds by divorcing her and searching for a new queen. And as providence would have it, by God's direction, through a beauty contest, essentially, this young Jewish girl named Esther is chosen to be the new queen. She is a Jewish woman, but that is unbeknownst to anyone in the kingdom because Mordecai, her older cousin, who had been taking care of her, tells her, don't tell anybody. There's too many enemies out there. Do not tell anybody that you're a Jew. So she finds herself in the palace. Mordecai is an employee of the king in some in some capacity, always around the gate, perhaps a guard of sorts. At any rate, Mordecai learns of a plot of two of the close officials of the king that would assassinate the king. He relays the information to Esther, who relays the information to the king, and the king is saved from this assassination plot. Mordecai is the one who did it, yet it seems to go without notice. Over ten years go by. Then we're introduced to one of the slimiest, nastiest people in all of human history, let alone just the Old Testament, Haman the Agagite, coming from a long line of people who hated God's people. God's people refused to follow God's, uh, God's uh, commands, and so Haman the Agagite was still around. And here he is, at this moment, threatening the whole kingdom because Mordecai would not bow to him. He decided he would not just kill Mordecai, but all the Jews, anyone related to Mordecai, would die. He finagles a way to get a decree issued so that all the Jews at a certain time, some 10 months ahead, would all be killed in the kingdom. Mordecai, in great pain and anguish, goes to Esther and says, maybe this is why you are here. Maybe this is the reason for your being here. And she struggled. There's no doubt she struggled. We think oftentimes of, of Esther and Mordecai as such heroes, but they're human beings. And they struggled. She struggled with saving her own neck. She knew if she went into the king, she could die. But yet in the end, through Mordecai's encouragement and ultimately the providence of God by his spirit, she goes in and speaks to the king and begins a process that would attempt to save the Jewish people from the hand of Haman. She keeps her enemies close as she talks to the king and has a dinner with Haman, who now has risen to the height of his arrogance and pride. The king, why is he so incompetent seemingly throughout these chapters and into the rest of the book? Many scholars think the defeats had grown on Ahasuerus, known as Xerxes in history, and that he had given over much power to people like Haman. This meshes well with what we know from the historical records. So he was almost aloof a bit, somewhat despondent. And this accounts for now Haman in such a position of pride and power. Now we come to chapter 5 of Esther, 
starting at verse 9, reading to the first verse of chapter 6. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting in the king's gate. And take note of this, brothers and sisters, what his good advisors tell him. Verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for these clear evidences of your providence. We know your providence always works, but Lord, you give us the life of Joseph, the book of Ruth, the book of Esther, to see how it plays out in history. Lord, give us confidence, even when we don't know the answer, to know you are behind all things that come to pass. And it's for your glory. And as we are related to your son, we too receive good. Lord, I pray more particularly to the one who is doubting your goodness today, that they would see clearly how it is that you uphold your righteous ones, the ones that you have united to yourself through the blood of Christ, even in the most difficult times. Lord, may we go from here giving great glory to you so that the world may see. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to the climactic conclusion of this wonderful lesson in God's providence. And keep in mind the overarching lesson that keeps coming back to our minds in this text. Seemingly random events, even the insomnia of a pagan king, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan right into human view for us to see. Now, I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, have you ever had a really bad day? I mean, a really bad day. I think all of us can say we have had a bad day. I think, I think that I would be accurate in saying that no bad day you have ever had quite aligns with the bad day Haman is about to have. This is a bad one. Now, remember, as we consider this great providential irony, as, we li as I like to call it in chapter 6 of this wonderful book, what I would say is a really bad day for Haman, Remember the biblical truth that is true for all of us as God's people. In the book of Proverbs, we are told very clearly when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Also, Proverbs tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Haman is having workers erect a 75-foot scaffold that will be used as a gallows to hang Mordecai in his mind. Now, verse 1 of chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Could it possibly be that the hammer blows building the gallows for Mordecai are the very thing that made the king unable to sleep? 
We can't say for sure, but in a bit of providential irony, would that not be interesting? He asked for one of the chronicles of the past to be read in order to make him sleepy. And these were large volumes that were written to note all the great things the king had done. And history tells us he didn't have a lot of those chapters written at this time. So he has one of his servants go to the shelf and pick one up, providentially picks one up that's 10 years old, dusts it off, opens it up, turns right to the spot, it seems, where Mordecai the Jew had saved him from assassination. Look at verse 2 and following. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Now realize, this king's feeling pretty down. His approval numbers are way low. And so he's upset. He's trying to sleep. He can't sleep. Who knows what's keeping him from sleeping? It could be just the anxiety over his poll numbers. It could be the gallows being erected. All of this comes together. He reads of a guy who actually got his back once, that has protected him. At that point, all sorts of people wanted to get him, no doubt. So he perks up when he sees a guy, hey, this guy did something good for me. He kept me alive. Well, what do we ever do for this guy by chance? Well, nothing, as a matter of fact, his servants tell him. And you can see why he would want to exalt someone like this. Uh, since there are so few people that were praising him at this time in his kingly rule, that to praise one who really was protective of him would have sent a message that I'll treat you well if you protect me. He's kind of in the self-preservation mode, still under the umbrella of the providence of God. And so his young men say nothing has ever been done. Just at that same time, it must be that day is just breaking. Haman is just itching to get in to tell the king that he wants to take care of Mordecai on the gallows. That way he can really enjoy this next feast with the king and the queen. So when he leaves that feast, everyone will be bowing. No more standing Mordecai, only a hanging Mordecai. So he's ready at daybreak to come into the king's, into the king's chamber. Verse 4, and the king said, who's in the court? So he must hear something, he must know someone's there. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Just at daybreak, most likely, just when the king is thinking of a worthy honor to bestow upon the man who saved his life way back when, Haman, his trusted advisor, comes into the palace. Verse 5, the king's young men told him Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? That, you know what's on the king's mind, but we also know what's on Haman's mind. Haman is on Haman's mind. And Haman says to himself, this beautiful commentary, there's not many places in scripture where we get this kind of commentary of what the person was thinking. Haman says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Clearly, he's ready to throw a bash for me. He's filled with pride at this point. The height of his pompous, arrogant attitude is here. And now the king wants to throw a huge worship session for me. And notice how quickly, Haman doesn't go back and drop a plan and bring it to him. Immediately out of his lips like it was natural, says this is what you should do for me. That's what he's thinking. Haman said to the king in verse 7, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. 
Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What a display that Haman describes. Surely this kind of thing had never been done before at this level. I mean, this must be unprecedented to actually wear the king's stuff and be worshipped as though he would be worshipped. And brothers and sisters, you know, pride makes us say some of the most foolish things. It really does. Now, some of us have more difficulty with this practice, and I speak of myself, so, of thinking before we speak. When pride wells up, that's all the more exacerbated and made worse. There is a lesson for us here, even in this villain, Haman. He's speaking off the cuff. He's not analyzing what the king says. He's just saying what he wants because he's so great. And the king hears this great idea and says to him in verse 10, and the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits in the king's gate. Leave out nothing, by the way, that you said. Nothing, not a bit of it. Do it all. The king has no idea what has just happened. He's sincere. And here's Mordecai with the sickest feeling a person could probably ever have as he hears these words. And Mordecai, or Haman, understands, understands the instability psychologically of this king. He knows him well. And so this is the reason why he immediately has to do what the king does. He didn't just say all this stuff, and we're going to use all your best wardrobe on this person, only to take it back now when the king has an idea that's supposedly his own. He has to do it at this point. He's wily. He understands what it could mean if he would go back on this now. Verse 11, so Haman took the robes and the horses, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, had to be grinning ear to ear. But Haman hurried to his house, hurried, shot to his house, mourning and with his head covered. It probably took most of the day for Haman to lead Mordecai around the city and ultimately through the square. The more pride one has, the greater the humiliation is experienced when it comes. I say when it comes, not if it comes, when it comes. Just when it could not possibly get any worse, Haman goes to his house where the very people who advised him earlier to kill Mordecai are there in all their support of love. Verse 13. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to them. Remember, the same friends who back in verse 14 of the previous chapter told him to go kill Mordecai. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Could it possibly get worse for him? How could it get worse? Now realize that it's not just that these are bad advisors and bad friends. They also have self-interest in it. You remember uh, the practice that was displayed by Haman, which was not unusual in ancient Near Eastern culture. That is, he was so mad at Mordecai that he wanted Mordecai to die and who else? Everyone associated. So the writing is on the wall for Haman's family here. If you have done this thing and he happens to be a Jew, they're starting to put it together. I mean, the poster for killing the Jews is right over the shoulder practically. You're going to fall if this guy is a Jew. You are in trouble. Could it get worse than that? Talk about a bad day. Well, verse 14, it gets worse. While they were yet talking with him, they weren't even done giving him all their encouragement. The king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. 
So now he's whisked off to another meal. Now understand, keep this in mind, that Haman doesn't know that Esther is a Jew yet. He doesn't know that she is related to Mordecai. He's down, he's low, but we can gather that this guy doesn't take much to get back up. And so now he's going back to this place of, uh, of reverence, where he's going to go, and the king and the queen want him there. So he's getting up again, the roller coaster ride. He's back up, thinking he's great, he's something, he's the man. He's got to begin to feel better, knowing he's so favored by the king and queen. Then in verse chapter 7, starting in the opening verses, I think we have one of the most awkward moments in all of Scripture. Have you had an awkward moment before? Look at how it begins. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Now, based on the night before, Mordecai would not be alerted by this request. I mean, what did she ask for the night before? Just to have another meal. You know, Haman's thinking to himself, really, what is, what is she going to ask? Go to the mall? Get an outfit? What, what is gonna, what's the big deal? It's not going to be a big deal. So he goes on eating. Now, awkward moments. I asked you if you've had an awkward moment. I want you to gather this and feel my pain for a moment because I've had awkward moments based on the tendency I mentioned earlier. I had worked for two years in a bank in Wichita, went away to seminary, and I want to say a year later, sometime in that frame, I came back just to say hi to all the people I work with in the office. Most of, most of these uh, people were ladies. And I saw a woman who I hadn't seen in maybe nine, ten months, and I thought she was pregnant. <laughs> you got it, exactly. You all know. What I'm, and so I saw her and I said, when's the baby due in front of everybody? Well, there was no baby due. The Christmas season had been difficult and hard on her, which I understand. And here I am in front of it, no less than 15 people who I had spent two years, honestly, just sharing life with and trying to witness to, invite to church. And here I am, when's the baby due? And it was as quiet as quiet can be, and people just kind of left me. And there I was, stuck. Okay, take that awkwardness and multiply it. Multiply it exponentially, and now you have what happens. As Mordecai hears this request go from the king uh, to the queen, and then verse 3, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. My people, Haman's thinking, my people, what, what's she talking about? Verse 4, for we have been sold, and I am my, my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. He has to get it at this point. He's too smart not to. So now Haman's feeling the heat. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Haman swallows a bite of food if he doesn't start choking on it. Verse 5, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? And who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Can you picture that moment? Haman terrified before the king and the queen, verse 6. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And just when you don't think it could get any worse, he goes to beg for his life to the queen, and he fumbles over the couch and lands on her feet. Verse 8, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? 
and the word left the mouth of the king, they, those pesky eunuchs are always hanging around. You notice that? I know why they have a bad attitude, but this is tough. They covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance, said to the king, by the way, that's what it is in the Hebrew, by the way, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet. And the king said, hang him on it. And they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The enemies of the church, the enemies of God's people, will make their plans. But they will never succeed. So ends one of the worst days for any human in history, no doubt. And thus begins a process of redemption. Esther using her influence for God's people, starting at chapter 8. Look there with me in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So now the revelation that Mordecai is related, and they're both Jews. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Amathida which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther uses, brothers and sisters, note, her influence to preserve God's people. I want to challenge us, you, to use your influence to advocate God's standards in any place that you have been given influence by God. Start right with your homes. From the earliest time, share God's law with your children. Share his word with your children. Do an honest assessment of the time you're spending. If it's just simply every other day having a prayer with your kids, that is not advocating God's standards to your family. Spend time advocating those standards before your family. A friendly environment in that sense. Your home. What about your neighborhood? I think often, especially in suburban America, we can be very happy to live our lives in our homes, wave at the neighbors when we come in and go out, but we don't have any advocating of God's standards in our subdivisions. Why not? Why, why would we not, to the degree that God gives us influence, be lights? And I don't just mean say it, I mean be acting as one who follows Christ. Advocate God's standards before the world. Our workplace, I think many of you have opportunities to advocate God's justice, God's mercy, God's grace in an environment that can be very hostile. And one thing we, ex we definitely learned from this is that God can use that kind of witness in a major way in those places. That environments that are hostile will not stop God's glory if he has placed his people there. Certainly all of us can be moved by this. Fulfilling God's role for you to be salt and light is possible even in a heathen environment. I would also suggest to you that we ought to be advocating God's standards as public policy is made and laws are passed. It's not just about what we do privately. The church has sat on the sideline too long and has listened to news stations that tell us that we should not bring religion into politics. Well, the fact is religion is in politics. It's called humanism. It's called materialism. So let's bring the right one in. 
And the way we do that is we vote for the right people, the people that have those standards, advocate those standards, and hold them accountable to do those things when they get there. Why not? Why would we not? We're not in nearly as hostile an arrangement as we have here. And yet we kind of stand by the side and say, as long as you keep us tax exempt, tax exempt, we'll lay off it. And I'm saying that the time has come to stand up and say, no more of this. No more of this. And what we see is really an evidence of what we want. And so if we really want something different, let's see the change happen and hold accountable those who are then placing in those positions. Has to start in pulpits, but then it must make its way out to the culture. Esther had an opportunity at that moment to speak up and influence God's glory ultimately by the protection of his people. We ought to do the same thing relative to the way it manifests itself in our given culture. You know something that really impresses me about this? The nature of a given government will not stop the progress and growth of the church. Have you ever thought about that? We often think that, oh, in our form of government, we should, listen, it's not doing so well, but if you want to go to China right now, and I don't advocate the form of government, but it doesn't thwart the church is what I'm saying. In fact, we have it on good sources that there are at least 60 million Christians in China. Some say as many as 200 million. Okay, we have 330 million people in America. Is it possible, and I think it is, that there are almost as many Christians as we have in this country in that place? And one of my prayers before the Lord is that he would let me see, kind of like Simeon praying to see the Messiah, that he would let me see the church just bust forth in Asia, because I think that's where it's coming. Because when someone professes Christ there, it's not that I don't believe us when we say it, but we don't have a gun pointing at us. We are not threatened to go to jail because we do so. So when they profess Christ, there's just something there that tells me that God is not in need whatsoever of a particular government to advance the church. In fact, he often advances it under these kinds of situations and settings. So be encouraged by this. The church is not affronted by what scares us, what scares man. He goes forward in his glory, building his church. Notice that Esther doesn't ask for the death of anyone who isn't a Jew. Rather, she begins by asking for the protection of her people. And as brutal as this seems, what happens, the only people that get it in the end are the ones who are complicitous with the edict. That is, they want to see the death of the Jews and are going to attack. Those are the people God allows justice to be executed upon. And it serves as a witness to those who are looking around. Look at verse 7, starting at chapter 8. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. So the other one can't be revoked, but we can write a new one, is what he's saying. You can, with my signet ring. The king's scribe were summoned at that time, in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, with the governors, and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bread from the royal stud. And it goes on to talk about how they are now allowed to defend their lives. And this also implies, and most commentators agree, that this also implies a certain uh, amount of ability given to them to defend themselves. Uh, they're supplied with arms, perhaps. So that when those people who had been planning for 10 months and all the rumors swirling around of how this attack would come, that the Jews could now rise up and protect themselves against them. This resonated across the provinces. 
Verse 15 of chapter 9. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in the royal robes in a blue and white with a great golden crown and robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy, of, joy and honor. In every province and every city, wherever the king's command, command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. A feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So they had seen what was happening, how the tide had turned. They saw God's people rising, and they turned. They said, I'm one of them. I'm not going to attack them. Verse 1 of chapter 9, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, the thirteenth day, day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Notice that the Jews did not attack, but rather they defended against those who meant them harm. And the people just kept coming at them. And God kept giving them victory over them in great numbers. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout the provinces in verse 2. King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. This extended even locally and even personally. Look at verse 6. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500, 500 men, and also killed and names all ten sons of Haman, the enemies of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. Even though the king had given permission to take the plunder, it is a sort of act of dependence upon God. They carried out the execution of the justice on the people that were fighting God's people, but they left the plunder so that no one would think the reason why they did this was to get rich. They did it for the honor of God's name. This is why they did it. And they went forward and did exactly that and left the plunder. But notice something interesting that has caused the interpreters uh, all sorts of ire over the years. The ten sons of Haman were killed by the sword, it says in this text. But then notice what queen, the queen asks after the king comes and asks what else you want, basically. And the king said to Esther in verse 12, And Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now, what most commentators come to in this, and I agree, is that this is a display of the bodies of the sons of Haman. Uh, they were killed with the sword, and the next day they were hung in display, so people understood what would happen if they would attack God's people. This is, unfortunately, still a practice in the ancient Near East, where there's a display of the victims shown, and it's happened throughout history to be a deterrent to those who would attack some more. Verse 14, so the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Brothers and sisters, the church will always have enemies who assail her. This is not the way that God works on a normal basis. There's something somewhat unique to this period of time, but not the defense of his people. That is something God is always, always about. As we act the way God tells us to act, he upholds us. But if we act like the rest of the culture acts, we can expect to get the same judgment the culture gets for it. But we, in the midst of that, are to stand righteously, representing our God by his power, so that we might show forth his glory to the world. There's a great feast that is given as a remembrance that Jewish people still 
celebrate today, the Feast of Purim, taken after the word of the, the lots that were cast uh, to decide the day in which the Jews would be killed. There is an importance in remembering. If you look at verse 17 of chapter 9, it notes this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar and the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. So they picked a day to remember. Uh, in verse 20, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces. So he sends out a note to say, let's use this as a day of remembrance. Verse 22 is the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies. It is the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written down for them. I think, brothers and sisters, it's important that we remember important milestones. It's important that we especially remember spiritual milestones. I was just back in my hometown a couple weeks ago, and every time I go back there, I go by an apartment complex that's very special to me because there was one particular apartment building that I went back there with a guy who was doing a backyard Bible club, and workers came out from a local church and shared Christ. And I remember... Having already been very convicted of my sin, I believed in Christ, but there was something about having an opportunity to sit with that man, understand what that story meant all the more, and profess faith in Christ there. And so when I go by that apartment, I still remember that. There's a milestone in my mind, and I hope every one of you has a milestone. Now, what, let me be clear about something theologically. God transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light in one instance according to his will. How you come to understand that can take time. So some of you will think of an epoch in your life where something became clear to you over time. You look back at some event. It could be a relationship. It could be a series of sermons you heard or something that happened that caused you to think about the eternal. But brothers and sisters, don't ever forget those times. The Jews look back at this time of deliverance and redemption and they gain strength for today and they still do today. We ought to do the same thing when we look back at that era, that we might persevere now, look back at what God did at that moment, and never forget it. God gives us a memorial. It's much more than a memorial, the Lord's Supper. But it is a memorial. It reminds us of what God has done for us, that our sin is serious, that the body of Christ had to be broken, and his blood had to be spilled. And redemption is clear to us based on the physical signs that God has ordained that we use. It is important to remember these things. It helps us in times of trial and hardship later. Chapter 10 gives us the final word on what happened. Just a few verses. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Brothers and sisters, in due time, God will cast down his enemies as a show of his sovereign power and glory. This story is something else too, isn't it though? We see a people who are condemned to death and we see them redeemed. And I personally relate with that exactly. Condemned by my own sin and redeemed by Christ all of God's grace. My life then becomes a reflection, a response to what he has done for me in Christ. God sometimes uses armies. Other times he uses obscure people like Joseph, Daniel, Esther in this case, to preserve his people and promote his glory by fulfilling his promise. What was his promise to the Jewish people then? That he would bring Messiah. What is his promise to us today? 
that our, our sins are forgiven by that Messiah. And he will never go back on that promise, ever. And he's building his church as a monument to that fact. Seemingly random events, even an increasingly incompetent pagan king, the promotion of a powerful and prideful adversary like Haman, the family relationship between Mordecai and Esther, and the bravery of a young Jewish woman. God uses these random events to bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful story of redemption corporately, but all the, all the truths that are shown forth uh, during this story. Lord, one thing it is sure, and we confess that the hero of this story is not Mordecai. Lord, the hero of the story we can clearly see is not King Ahasuerus, a pagan. Lord, the hero of the story is not even Esther. Lord, very vividly, the hero of this story is you. And all the glory goes to you. And you have shown forth this glory ultimately by sending your son and applying his work to those who believe by your spirit. We thank you for this. May we not leave here knowing this to be true. In Christ's name, amen.